Well, that is indeed the mission of the Church of God, to go into all the world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning. I bring you greetings from the other side of the world with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the UK. And I'm thankful to report that God is working over there just as he is working here. And it is a blessing and a joy and an honor uh, to get to be back with you today. I'm a little bit jet lagged this morning and I'm also a little bit drugged up. And so I want to do a little bit of a, of a disclaimer. Anything that I say today, please don't hold it against me tomorrow. Um, it, it is a tremendous joy to be with you. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 38. We continue the series that we've been in the past few months. And I believe God has a word for us today. And so I, I pray this morning that you have prepared your heart, you've asked the Lord to speak to you, and that you've been willing to follow him in obedience to his word. Matthew chapter 12, we begin reading in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. If you could ask God for anything that you wanted, what would it be? And if you were to receive that for, for which you asked from God, would it be enough? And so for each of us, that's for different things. You say, if I had just enough money, I would be happy with God. Or maybe if you like to travel, if I had a, a ticket that I could go anywhere in the world, anytime that I want to, I would do it. Some of you who are car enthusiasts, if there was a certain model and a type that you could have regardless of the prize and God would give that to you, man, you would just be set for life. Maybe there's other things. Maybe you've said, God, if you just gave me a relationship, that would be okay. If you just gave me good health. If you just gave me a little bit more recognition for what I do. For each of us, that, that's a different sort of thing. But the question you have to ask following that is, if you got what you think you most need from God, would that satisfy you? 
That's the question that C.S. Lewis addresses. This past week, I had the privilege of sitting in the, the tavern or the restaurant where C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien conspired together um, in, in the 40s and the 50s, talking about literature and talking about the works that they would put together. And, you know, in that tavern, there were plenty of things offered, and I sat there with my fish and chips and Diet Coke and had a great time and saw the pictures and some different things. That's, that, that's one story. Keep in mind, you know, keep a list of how many stories start going. Lewis writes in perhaps his most famous series, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. He chronicles the tale of four children, one of the children whose name is Edmund. And Edmund is after the thing that he most desires. It is Turkish delight. I don't know if you've had that. It's a very popular uh, dish in, in, in England. And so Edmund wants everything that he can to get a piece of that Turkish delight. And the wicked queen offers it to him. She offers it to him in abundance if he will simply betray his family and friends. And Edmund, in a moment of weakness, does exactly that. He gives in to that temptation. And pretty soon, this wicked witch begins to stuff into his mouth as much Turkish delight as he can handle. So much so that he becomes sick of it. It's all that she gives him. She gives it to him in abundance so that the very thing that he once loved he begins to loathe. And what he thought would bring him happiness only brought him misery. I'm convinced that's the way it is for many of us as the children of God. What we think we want from God and what we need from God are often two totally different things. And here are the scribes and the Pharisees seeing all of the miracles that Jesus is performing, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, the blind being given their sight, the lame walking, demons being cast out, and they say, Master, if you will just show us a sign, we will believe. And you can just imagine Jesus looking at them after doing all of this ministry and just heaving his shoulders in a sigh of frustration at all that they've just seen. Have you ever had somebody ask you that question or make that statement? Well, if God is real, if God is real right now, then let him just strike me with lightning right where I stand. Anybody ever heard somebody say that or heard that phrase? If God is real, let him strike me. What kind of God would he be if he listened to your beck and call? It's usually my response. We often ask God for a sign when what we need is not really a sign. What we need is a spirit of repentance and of obedience. And so much of Jesus' ministry was about confronting false expectations. He wasn't really worried a whole lot what people thought about him. He was more worried what God thought about him. And it changed his interactions with everybody. And if we would be more concerned with what God thinks of us than what people thinks of us, the way that we talk to them would be totally different. The conversation would be changed because now it would no longer be what do they think of me, but how can I help this person do the will of God? How can I bring them closer to a relationship with Him? And so the kind of miracle that they demand, Jesus consistently refuses to perform. He's not doing a P.T. Barnum show. This isn't a circus and it's certainly not a carnival. And the very thing that they think they most want is exactly what they do not need and what they demand, God does not give them. Now what happens when we demand things of God? When we begin to impose rules on God and then we don't get what we think we want? Many of us turn away. 
Many of us become bitter at the church and the Lord because we didn't get what we asked for. And yet, what if God, in not giving you what you most wanted, was protecting you in a way that you could not see so that he could give you the very thing that you always wanted but didn't realize you needed? Here are the scribes, here are the Pharisees, seeing these signs and wonders and yet missing the, the whole point of this. And signs are often granted to those who have faith. So how are the faithless going to see them? And Jesus responds to them and he says, this evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. They're commandment breakers, essentially. And, and this request is that Jesus should confirm himself and be credible in some miraculous way. But this isn't new for him. Isn't this exactly what Satan said out in the wilderness to him? He said, if you're really... The Son of God, show me. And it's very easy for us to condemn the scribes and the Pharisees when very often that's exactly what we do too. God, if you will just show me your will for my life, I'll do it. Pretty sure he's given that to us in his word. He says, love the Lord with everything you have and then love your neighbor as yourself. And when you figure that out, come back to him. We seek for a sign, but God has given us a sign, has he not? Signs were often used in the Old Testament for confirmations uh, of different things, but if you'll remember, even Pharaoh's servants and musicians could perform certain miraculous signs, but they weren't of the Lord. And here's the irony that Jesus addresses, as he so often does. They want a sign from him, a sign that has never been seen, and demons are being cast out in the name of God. And Jesus must think exactly the parable that he tells in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus, that if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen to my words. Though one rise from the dead. So he basically says, you can go out into the cemetery, somebody can come back to life, and there will still be people who will not believe. They're looking for a sign, but they're refusing to see it. And Jesus says, this was the sign of Jonah. It was the preaching of repentance that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man would be in the grave three days so that judgment would be pronounced upon those who rejected the message. And the difference for the Ninevites and the difference for that generation and the difference for us today is that the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. In fact, if you remember the story, Jonah got mad about it, did he not? He sat outside of town. The Ninevites were his enemies. They had destroyed his people. And he sits there, this shade tree, God crawls to grow up from the ground. Jonah sits there, mad at the people for obeying God. And God takes the tree away. And Jonah becomes furious at that. He says, why did you take this away? And God says, you cry over that which you did not plan and you did not grow. And yet you want me to destroy the very people that I created? See, we understand that God has a right to do when he wants, with whom he wants, how he wants. And he has that same right with you as well. This generation refuses to repent, even though something greater than Solomon and Jonah is right in front of them. You know, sometimes I think we think that suffering is the worst thing that can happen to us. There are Vietnamese pastors right now who are being persecuted by their government. Hundreds of them have been arrested, and they're being told to only meet in one place of assembly where they can't fit or 
to abandon all of the house churches and the programs they have. So they're being thrown in prison. They're being threatened with poison. They're being threatened with their very lives. But you know what one of the Vietnamese was said to have said as a result of this? They said, listen to this. Suffering is not the worst thing you can experience. Disobedience to God is the worst thing. How very true that is. These scribes and Pharisees see the mission in front of them, but they disobey. They demand a sign, and yet they don't see what God has done. You know, those of us who are looking for a sign, what will be enough? Remember, I used to, told you, used to play basketball thinking, you know, if God would just give me a sign of what He wanted me to do, let me hit the shot. I wish I had done something besides sports because I'm terrible at sports and it took 10 tries to hit the shot. I mean, it was forever to discern the will of God. Some of us are like that. What kind of sign do you need? I'm just convinced whenever we ask for signs, whenever we say, God, just show yourself to me in, an, in, a, in another way, and it's not always wrong to do this, but I can't imagine God sitting up in heaven and listening to our request and sometimes just replying with all of his heart, I put my son on the cross for you. And if that isn't enough for a sign, nothing else will ever be. This Savior, this Messiah who they have long expected they now reject. They refuse to do the will of God. Listen to this. God may not always do what you ask, but you can always be assured that He will do what is best for you. And He will not withhold any good thing from you. And what you need to do is not hold out to Him asking for a sign all the time, but say, God, whatever you have called me to do in your word, I will be obedient. I will do it even if I don't always understand. And then he goes on and gives us this parable of this return of an unclean spirit, and it's directly related, related to the disobedience that the Pharisees and the scribes have just expressed here. This man is here, he's got cleaned up, the spirits have been cast out of him, but he doesn't go all the way. He, he wants part of what Jesus offers. He wants to be free from the pain that he experiences, but he doesn't want the goodness of God. He's got his body cleaned up, but he hasn't washed his soul. He needs soap and water, but he doesn't have the blood of Christ. See, many of us want the good things that God offers, but we don't want the obedience that God requires. It's not enough for me to put off sin. I also have to put off righteousness, put on righteousness. And whenever you try to, to rid a bad habit in your life or a vice in your life, and you don't put in its place the will of God, he says, it'll be worse for you than it was before. So many of us, think about the culture that we live in today. That they say, you know, quit smoking, quit drinking, quit doing drugs, quit having sex outside of marriage, and the culture doesn't say that, but it ought to. All, all of those different things, we say, quit, quit, quit. We don't tell them what to do in its place. For the believer, if you do not fill those vices with devotion to God, with an overwhelming passion for Him, it'll be worse for you than it was before. He, he tells us this. It reminds us of who Jesus is, who came not to do His own will, but the will of His Father. Here's the mark of a true believer, whether or not you know and you have assurance that you're a true believer in the gospel of Christ. 
It's not whether or not you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. It's whether or not you are obedient to the will of God. See, for a true believer to continue to be disobedient to the will of God is totally contrary to the gospel. I may turn away. I may have times of rebellion, but God says eventually I'll come back. And if I don't, maybe I never was a part of the community before. And so now Jesus comes to this final thought. His family members come to him and he's told them that this is going to come at a cost. He's told them that you'll have to give up your family in order to follow Jesus. And he says something truly astonishing to them. They say, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are, are out there looking for you. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? But those who do the will of God. That one's spiritual family takes eternal priority over one's biological family. Now, you've heard the expression that blood is thicker than water. All of us have heard that means family ties, you know, when it comes to the end of all things, family's going to be there for you because they don't have a choice in the matter. They're kind of, you're kind of stuck with each other. Even more so in the church of God. He says it's not nearly as important who your biological family is as who your spiritual family is. And the way that you love your family ought to be expressed even that much more in the church of God. And the way that the world will see that Jesus is real and Christianity is authentic is by you and I loving one another as Christ loved us. That's when the world will see the gospel. When we love one another. Sometimes we spend a lot more time fighting and arguing with one another than we do loving one another. But Jesus says that will be the example. That will be the witness. You know, so much of ancient history is tied to your bloodline. There's arguments over who should be on the, the throne of England. I've read quite a bit of, of British history, who should, who wouldn't, and they often refer to their, their bloodline. Henry VIII is probably the most well-known king, um, at least in Western history. And Henry VIII used his father's fortune to build these gigantic palaces. And so you can see pictures of them that I've taken. His, his father had the fortune. Henry VIII emptied that treasury out and built all these great palaces. His goal was to be as renowned as Julius Caesar. Caesar's goal was to be as renowned as Alexander the Great. That they spent all this time trying to measure up of the, of the people who went before them and not paying attention to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Henry VIII, for all of his money, planned on building this great tomb where people could come and flock to it. But it didn't get done in his lifetime. And they decided not to end it. And right now, Henry VIII, one of the richest kings to ever live, who built all of these magnificent palaces. You can go inside Windsor Castle in St. George's Chapel, and Henry VIII has a block about this big. He's measured there with Jane Seymour, his third wife, and with Charles I, the only English king to be executed. And people walk on top of this grave. They don't even know who they're walking over. It's marked, but if you don't pay attention to it, you don't see it. All of this time, all of this money, trying to make his name great and trying to make his family great when he should have understood that only God is great. And he calls us to that right now. He tells us, when you know that you are my disciples, you will have love for one another. And really, here's where it comes down to. Everything in your life, everything in your life, hinges on obedience to the will of the Father. 
It affects everything. It affects how you relate to your family. It affects how you work. It affects how you handle opposition, how you deal with struggles. And the key for you and for everyone else is to have your thoughts and your words and your actions in alignment to obedience with the will of God. When God's desires become your desires. But in order to obey Him, you must love Him. And the only way that you will love Him is when you know Him. I'm not talking about knowing about Him. I'm not talking about being able to recite things in the Scripture. I'm talking about knowing Him. I'm talking about daily communion with God. Do you know what that's like? It's the whole reason you and I are created, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and every single day they walk with God. It's the whole purpose. Are you walking with Him? Because let me just tell you something. If you're not walking with Him, God has no greater desire in your life than to walk with you. And He will show you exactly why you're here on this earth. And rather than looking for signs and symbols and everything that the world has to offer, He will give you assurance simply by the power of His Spirit that He has placed within your life. But it starts with loving Him. It starts with knowing Him. And rather than asking for a sign, look for a sign of a God who gave His Son on your behalf. Follow Him. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.